Coming up next on Futures in Biotech, Beiju Shah, President and CEO of BioEnterprise, explains how to transform a regional economy into a thriving biotechnological innovation center. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Futures in Biotech is provided by CashFly at CashFly.com. This is Futures in Biotech, Episode 84, Biotech, Hot in Cleveland. I believe that biotech is the next frontier. Probably the greatest intellectual revolution that's ever taken place uh, in man's history. DNA is the code for life. We're actually beginning to understand how life works, which I think is something that's mind-blowing in and of itself. There was uh, going to be a genetic component for aging. How long was there to the extension? About 30, 40% for humans. That would equate to something like 20 to 30 years. How close are we to actually having a therapy or something? 10 years. It's potentially one of the things that will end up rocking the world the same way that uh, people said, oh, the sun is the center of the universe, oh, this and that and everything. And now here's somebody who can come out and say, hey, look, here's how we compare it to our closest evolutionary relative. Welcome to Futures in Biotech. I'm Mark Peltier. Today, uh, we're very, very fortunate to have a, an incredible individual. He's, I'm a fan of his uh, and have been for about three years uh, since, uh, since we met. Um, it's, the show's not going to be as much of a technology, biotechnology show, but very, very uh, um, relevant to technology. Our, um, our guest is the president and CEO and founder of BioEnterprise uh, in Cleveland. And he was named uh, an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year and has been recognized as one of Cleveland's most, individual, uh, most influential leaders. Shaw is a Cleveland native, received his JD from Harvard and his BA from Yale. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons I thought it'd be great to bring you on is because one... Um, um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I, I've been having a, a crazy day with respect to uh, technology. So, uh, yeah. an important element of actually getting technology off the ground and into the uh, commercial setting, and, and getting it to the hands of people, and be it healthcare or, um, you know, getting a, a drug to market or a device to market that'll be maybe a, a surgical implant in or even a, an iPhone. There's an incredible element to actually getting that realized. And, um, you know, f coming to Cleveland, we moved from New Haven, one of the, from Yale, it was a Yale spinoff. Uh, your work has, was one of the major influencers in getting my company to come to Cleveland. So I've wanted to have you on the show for a while. And finally, our schedules have, have, uh, ha have crossed. And <laughs> you really are just one floor down, which is really uh, fun. Um, you've made our space available, too, for our company, which is, which is really a huge contribution to, uh, this, you know, what we've been able to do. Um, but before we start, I'd like to warm up the show a little bit and uh, allow people to get to know you a little. Um, so you have, you, you came from Cleveland and then uh, you went to Yale as an undergrad, you got your BA and then your uh, law degree from Harvard, which seems to be like a one-two punch of academia. I don't, I don't know many people who have been able to pull that off. And while you did say it's <laughs> perhaps only interesting to your mother, I think 
But with our audience, young audience, very driven audience, very smart audience, they might uh, be interested in seeing how someone goes about, you know, graduating from high school and doing the one-two punch academically. Well, I don't know. You know, I think the environment has changed dramatically in terms of the options that kids have uh, for where they can further their education. I think, uh, you know, probably like many young people at the time, I had no idea of what I wanted to do. I uh, went through high school and knew from my parents and from many others that it was important to do well and did as well as I could and had the opportunity to, because of doing well, to attend uh, universities such as those and uh, took advantage of that opportunity. What did you study as an undergrad? You know, oddly enough, I was a history major. Uh, I went into Yale thinking that I was going to major in mathematics, and I'm not exactly sure why I thought I'd major in mathematics. I, I had some phenomenal teachers across the board in high school, and certainly the math department was one of the standout departments uh, within our high school, and so I think that's probably what led me to go into Ma Yale and probably be one of very few freshmen declaring that, you know, I'd love to major in mathematics, but uh, when in my freshman year, in my first course, when mathematics became uh, very abstract, we went into sort of uh, abstract calculus, I think was the course, uh, <laughs> it started losing my interest and in probably my, uh, you know, my ability to keep up uh, with that course. But at the same time, uh, Yale was known for its history department, and so I sampled a few courses on that side my freshman year as well. And I found an immediate love with the, not, not only the, uh, the, the subject matter of history, but really the way it was being taught at the time. Uh, it, you know, at Yale, at least the way I think about history, it's really the study, it's kind of the integrated study of everything, whether it's science or art or literature or the traditional politics and diplomacy and economy. It all kind of comes together as you study different cultures and civilizations. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of history, and that's what I think led me to, to major in it. Uh, I had the side benefit of, you know, as a history major, unlike mathematics or the sciences where uh, the majors are quite demanding and involve lab work, which uh, involves usually weekly submissions of some sort or another and exams throughout the year. History is a great major because it's one exam and you're done. You know, you, for 13 weeks, you're, you can do whatever you want in terms of keeping up with the class and then you cram for that one exam at the end and you're done. <laughs> it reminds me of my first year of undergrad, by the way. I was in economics. and uh, Yeah. I, I I wanted to try it, but um, you know I, I'd read the textbook the night before um, and right. end up doing okay. But um, for a different reason, I I had to be I had to go to biology. I just I, I had to. It, it was in my blood. Um, but I, I I can see the attraction of history and and that you've got this you know complete review of society up till the present time. And uh, if you're going to make plans for the future, you'd best know what how it went. In the past, uh, and, uh, it's just, it's it's great stories. You know, it's amazing to see the intrigue that occurs between different uh, individuals, cultures, civilizations, whatever, uh, that have defined history. You know, world history. Um, but while I was at Yale, I also took a healthy diet of sciences. I I was sort of the the science dilettante, one on one course in probably every discipline across the board, including engineering, just because I've always had this love of technology and love of, uh, of science and innovation. Well, so you, but then um, you, you went off to uh, Harvard Law. Total now, that must have been a, a wild experience, applying and getting in. That was, uh, it was definitely a left turn in more ways than probably one. Uh, the, um, I had spent, after I left Yale, I actually took a year 
where I worked in politics. Uh, I worked on the campaign side of politics for a year, and uh, it was just one of those things where a couple of friends had done it. So they said, you might want to try it. I tried it out. It was a great learning experience, and I learned to hate campaigns uh, <laughs> and a lot about politics in the process. But through that, uh, I really got an exposure to public policy, uh, not on the policies making side of it, but to the, the preamble to it when you're sort of shaping campaigns and candidates and positions. And I found out that I actually had this love of, you know, the public side, not the public sector, but sort of the public uh, sphere and decisions that were being made that would impact uh, numbers of people that uh, the government can is really only positioned to do. And that's really what led me to uh, look at law schools as sort of the next step in my own educational pathway and I applied to a few of them and uh, was lucky enough to go to Harvard, which coincided with my wife also uh, pursuing her graduate work in Boston. Wow. So was she at Yale as well? She was. She was at Yale. We met as, an un we met as undergrads. Wow, that's, that's got a lot of uh, historical uh, precedence there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's All right, great. so that's okay. Check. <laughs> I'm ticking the boxes here, you know, for your future career here. Okay, so, <laughs> so that's really cool. Uh, it did, did on the back of your mind, uh, your, 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 you know, interest in sort of public policy and, and sort of uh, did it, and your love for tech and public policy, did you see it sort of coming together through law school or did you, um, did you really. go with the... The core material. I think, yeah, you know, when you go into any of these educational programs, there's such a heavy emphasis on the core. Uh, mm -hmm. The first year is all, is all required courses. There are no electives in the first year. In the second and third year, there's a lot of recommended courses that one takes going through law school, uh, whether it's to prepare to practice or prepare for the bar exam or just general sort of, you know, next stage building blocks of, of the basic fundamentals of, of law. But I did take one course in particular that uh, I took a couple of courses that resonated and, and influenced me that I certainly remember uh, and had, again, the benefit of some great professors. But one in particular that I took was in this, this interesting session that occurs uh, between first and second semesters. It's called the J-term uh, in January, where you take an intensive three-week course, and they're all on uh, very focused topics. Uh, and I happen to have the benefit of taking one such course I think it was in my second year, it might have been in my third year, but it was all focused around uh, what are the legal aspects of what uh, are known as social ventures, uh, for-profit organizations that are mission-driven more so than they are profit-driven. And the emerging models that had started even back then of this new hybrid of a corporation that has both a profit motive and a mission motive, sort of your classic double bottom line today. It's been expanded to triple bottom line in certain sectors. And understanding how those corporations not only operate, but how they uh, resolve some of their competing uh, duties to, to different stakeholders that uh, they, they interact with. And so, but through that course, uh, it was taught by a practitioner in Boston. I really got exposure to these types of firms that were out there, organizations that were working on whether it was housing or uh, urban redevelopment or uh, food or uh, economic development, a whole variety of different types of organizations that were out there that were really trying to affect public change, but through a fundamentally different model. And I think that that's sort of when things, uh, the seeds were planted for, for what's become bioenterprise. Couldn't articulate it at the time, and I certainly didn't have a technology overlay at the time to, you know, what was uh, enamoring me about 
that particular course, but it became uh, the, the item that I ended up uh, writing my law school thesis about. Uh, there was an organization in Chicago called Shorebank that at the time had gotten a lot of fanfare because President Clinton had held it up as a model for a for-profit bank that had adopted a social mission and had blended the two over a, a wonderful 20-year history at the time of both profit as well as uh, societal impact. Uh, and that became the subject of my, uh, my third-year uh, law school thesis that was required for graduation is how does one resolve that? How does one uh, handle the duties that you have to your shareholders and investors at the same time your other stakeholders in the community? And that sort of engendered, I think, my uh, ongoing interest in, in that sort of space that intersects the private and the public. That's really interesting because, you know, when you uh, folk, when myself as a scientist, I think of business, you always think of, uh, you know, on this optimization towards the bottom line and, you know, you, you do your best to create a product, get it to market and get it uh, and make as much money as possible. And it's not necessarily um, for the good of mankind or, you know, it's kind of a, but it, it, you're 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 yeah. driven by profits, and it's sure. it's very pragmatic, and it's it's important because you're you're trying to support your family and and, and you know support yep. the community by creating jobs, and but it can be very pragmatic, and I think this is really interesting that you have this sort of uh, social compassion that sort of drove you towards this interface between the one model of you know make a car, right. sell car, color the car, right. the color, car they want. Right versus maybe having a mission to make a car company that's going to make a car that will, you know, right. accessible for everyone. Yeah, yeah. that's that, that well, better for, is, for society. Well, I think this plays out really well in the space of medical entrepreneurship because I, I think fundamentally, uh, whether you're the scientist or uh, the product development manager or the marketing manager or whoever's involved in these medical startups, they're being driven primarily by the mission. They're trying to bring a product to market that's going to have a significant impact on patient lives. Now they realize that if they're successful, there's obviously profit, there's obviously a great success, and the way the mechanisms of our society work is that incentive has to be there to enable the investment to come in that's required to actually develop a product that's going to be both safe and effective for, for patients here as well as around the world. But what drives these entrepreneurs is not the dream of the yacht and the third home and things of that sort. It's really about you know, how can I make patients' lives significantly better through innovation? That's what's exciting about this field in, in general for me and how it, I think it resonates with some of the things that I was exposed to uh, back in law school. Well, that's really neat. Uh, you know, that's uh, <laughs> really neat. I couldn't get any yeah. darker than that. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. Though. This that's, is Futures in Biotech. Yeah. It's kind of a yeah. conversational thing. So, you know, sure. what that, it, you know that it, you can use, you have to, of course, use... Uh, uh, the commercialization potential, right? The commercial potential yeah. to leverage making that uh, that contribution, whether it be a, a new uh, new artificial organ, for example, that nobody's ever been able to make before. That yeah. could, you know, if you could just make a kidney just in a test tube, right? Mm -hmm. Unless there's a market for kidneys in a test tube, and there's a way to pay people to make those and to develop those, then you're not going to be able to do it. And the life science is really. Uh, is a good example. I, I suppose there are other examples where you could sure. have mission-driven. Um, but I think it, in, it, this, because of the, you know, if, if your goal was to make a buck, there's a, many other industries where it's a lot easier to make a buck. You can develop an iPhone app 
to make a buck and you can get you know get it on the market relatively quickly probably with the savings of yourself as well as some of your friends and family members and you can have a shot at making a business and you can you know there's nothing wrong with that i i strongly support all types of entrepreneurship and capitalism but for those of entrepreneurs inventors that choose to work in the medical technology area they recognize that the timeline is is very different than traditional businesses because of the regulatory processes that are involved this is not an overnight uh, success or two years until you you know hit validation this can be five ten fifteen years of dedicating your life towards something and the only way i think you sustain that level of dedication because you are working harder than you would work in a traditional job and you're not getting paid as much uh, until the product is successful is because you fundamentally believe in the mission and that's what motivates i think all individuals that are involved again no matter what functional area they're involved in in our sector that's what motivates them to participate and that's what gets us excited uh... and get at bioenterprise to be able to assist those types of entrepreneurs do you think an entrepreneur that uh... is uses a philosophy of being mission driven versus product driven um, yeah, I guess if you're, you're doing it in the life sciences, as you're, you're saying, it can take up to 15 years to get a, a product to market, and you have to have an incredible um, sort of psyche to get you through that process. Yeah. I think it's a, if, if it does it translate to other um, industries. I mean, or, or say for example, is is Apple or um, what other uh, company that's highly innovative? Uh, Bombardier. Yeah, Google. 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 Yeah, right? exactly. Bombardier. Right. Sure. Level. Yeah. yeah. Great levels of innovation. Are do you, do you have you spent any time with those CEOs? And have you found a common thread of being mission driven versus uh, product driven? You know, in my prior career to Bio Enterprise, I, I had the opportunity to work at McKinsey and Company, and so we consulted with a number of different uh, types of industries. I did, and I uh, had the opportunity to meet a, a number of different management teams. And well, I guess what I would say is there are certainly companies that are mission-driven, that individuals feel compelled to work because they believe in the mission of the company more so than it's just a job that, you know, is a good job and a challenging job and a great work environment. But for the most part, uh, what I've found is that for a, large, a lot of individuals in these larger companies, it really is just that. It's a job. It's, it, they've lost that sense of mission, that our mission is about this. And I think... Um, when you lose touch with the mission, uh, at some point your organization, whether it's small or large, loses its ability to be effective because people need a higher purpose uh, for their work to be able to really uh, contribute all of their skills and resources to, to making that enterprise successful. And generating, you know, increasing shareholder returns yeah, as you're taught in, in sort of general business theory as sort of the, the highest and greatest purpose of a corporation, is simply not that motivating to the vast majority of people that are engaged in an enterprise. I think they want to feel that they're part of something that is important to the world, important to their neighbors, important to their families. And to the extent that you can create an enter enterprise or an organization that gives them that sense of belonging to a higher purpose, I think you get great uh, you know, performance out of your your employees and have a much greater chance of actually being commercially successful. I, I think that's probably the most important information I've ever heard on futures in biotech. Seriously, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I doubt it. about this. Well, no, yeah. I've I've had I've I've interviewed we've interviewed uh, Mario Capecchi who went from homeless child to Nobel laureate, and yet understanding what drives him 
is yeah. really uh, what I've been trying to go after. Now I don't. That's it. I don't have to do any more futures in biotech because <laughs> I now know what the mo- what is that. That's true. I mean, I, I see it as the motivating factor. Um, right. You know, I guess Steve Jobs when he went up to the uh, sure. uh, C- president CEO of Pepsi Cola and said, "Do you want to keep selling sugar water or do you want to come and change the world?" And uh, right. You know that that summarized it pretty well too. But um, you know, I I I being in the lab all the time. I don't see what what motivates others to uh, to do what they do. And, uh, well, but you see it in your own employees all around you, right? I mean, they're they're working around the clock. They'll come in on weekends. They'll stay at nights for experiments. It's because they believe in the work and they believe in the potential of the product that you're working on and the impact it's going to have if it's successful on the lives of, of so many. Whether there are you know wounded veterans. Uh, or wounded uh, Americans or, or global citizens. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, mechanistically how how you uh, bioenterprise came about. You, sure. you know this this is a fascinating story and uh, one that probably should be cloned in every city uh, of the country. Um, yeah, go for it. Go for it. How did you start it? Well, I, I'm one of the founders. I wouldn't say I'm sure. the only founder of anything, but... Um, I meant the larger you. To, <laughs> you know, this goes back to... I'll draw a little bit on my history, you know, background here. You have to look at sort of the historical context in which we were found, and that explains why it doesn't exist in, in all cities. So Cleveland's history is one, uh, to summarize for your, for your listeners, uh, which started with great prosperity. It was, you know, said by many to be the equivalent of the Silicon Valley of the early 1900s, whether it was the chemical firms, the automotive firms, uh, the service firms grew up around those uh, things, or some of the great industrial manufacturing companies. And because of that great period of innovation and entrepreneurship that existed here, let's say from the late 1800s through through the 1920s, out of that you grew a wonderful group of corporations, many of which survive today, that became the backbone of Cleveland. But Cleveland's culture shifted from one of innovation and entrepreneurship to one of stewards of the, the great innovation and invention that had occurred that engendered these industries that really transformed uh, America from an agrarian society into to, to the industrial uh, society and the post-war society in America. But Cleveland, like many regions of the world, as well as regions of our country, uh, rested to some extent on its laurels and never reinvested in innovation and entrepreneurship. And so Cleveland's economy and population and sort of just general well-being, uh, some would argue, peaked probably in the 1960s, or at least sort of the growth of Cleveland peaked in the 1960s. Then all of a sudden you had this steady, quiet uh, plateau and then eventual erosion because the industries that built Cleveland and made us prosperous were the ones that were most subject to to competitiveness uh, from a global perspective. And all of a sudden... Cleveland uh, seemed to lose its way. You know, our, our low point is Cleveland was really probably 1979, where the city, under then Mayor uh, Dennis Kucinich, uh, almost defaulted uh, as a city. You know, we find ourselves oddly at the same point now as the, at the United States. But it was in that moment that the civic leadership came together and said, we've got to act as business leaders, uh, religious leaders, political leaders, foundation leaders to chart a different course for our city. So from 1980 to, to, I'd say, through the early 1990s, a lot of the focus and effort that was put forth by that group was on rebuilding the sense of place. So in Cleveland, you know, at the time, you probably had 
uh, maybe two or three skyscrapers downtown. Yeah, but through the late 80s and 90s, you had the growth of a number of skyscrapers as businesses reinvest in the downtown, new stadiums, new museums, uh, a great sense of place. Uh, but in, in the mid-90s, Cleveland, because of a lot of that physical construction, was often dubbed as, quote, the comeback city, you know, the model for the rest of the country. And how do you take an economy that was once prosperous, came on hard times because of global uh, factors, and make it prosperous once again? What we recognized in 2000, though, is that building a sense of place and building wonderful monuments and museums uh, and buildings was, was not enough because the economy had continued its structural decline. And it was in that recession that uh, occurred right after the tech boom that our civic leadership, again, all of these same actors, and at this point we became a part of it, recognized that it wasn't enough to just rebuild place. Uh, we really had to rebuild our industrial base, our, our fundamental underpinnings of the economy in Cleveland. We looked around uh, in Cleveland at the time and sort of did your classic assessment of, you know, which sectors were going up, which ones were going down, which ones were, were holding sideways. And in that assessment, uh, the civic leadership recognized that we had a jewel in our healthcare uh, community. Uh, and the, the jewel here was really our incredible research and clinical institutions that were world-renowned already back in 2000, whether it was Case Western Reserve or the Cleveland Clinic or University Hospitals. But you also had a growing industry, uh, and you had all of the wind in the sails of that industry just given the demand growth uh, that was being driven uh, not only by American healthcare, but really global healthcare at the point. So it was in that environment that we recognized that we had these ingredients. We had this fundamentally uh, you know, rich position in innovation and uh, clinical care and we had beginnings of a, a broad biomedical industry, yet we had missed the entire tech boom that had occurred in the 1990s. So while places like Research Triangle were being created out of basically agricultural fields in a forest, uh, and investment was flowing in there, and entrepreneurs were, were going there, uh, that wasn't happening in Cleveland in spite of having all of the same ingredients and, and perhaps a better starting point than uh, some of the other geographies in which we saw that blossom in the 90s. It was in that context that we decided that we should take an assessment of our current situation. We ought to look at what other regions had done to accelerate the growth of this particular industry. And through that, we created uh, a strategy in, that had a simple vision. Uh, the vision is really to make Cleveland a nationally known center for healthcare innovation. And a simple metric, which was we were going to measure our success by how much private investment capital was flowing into companies in our region and how that compared to places like Research Triangle, Minneapolis, and other already you know, well-established hotspots at the time. We were, BioEnterprise was set up to be the keepers of that vision uh, and that metric and to be a catalyst for developing emerging companies in the geography. Uh, a number of other strategies were embarked upon to complement that. Uh, so again, we don't exist in a vacuum here. We undertook a public policy initiative called the Third Frontier, which now today is over $2 billion of investment that the state of Ohio is putting forth into emerging companies, into translational research institutes in our institutions. Uh, all of our institutions in Cleveland invested in their internal resources and technology transfer. Uh, we also, as a foundation community, decided to create a unique pool of philanthropy to fund organizations such as BioEnterprise to assist entrepreneurs, but also to uh, fund the beginnings of nonprofit capital sources to help support entrepreneurs in emerging spaces such as biomedicine, 
to develop their ventures. So we had this comprehensive strategy that was put in place in 2001 to really achieve that vision of uh, becoming the equivalent of a research triangle, an ex-national hotspot for health innovation. You were a young man in 2001. Not that you're not a young man now. <laughs> you were a really young, you're a kid. Were you like 32, 31 at the time? Uh, I think I was uh, just uh, 30, yeah. Just to turn 30. <laughs> so, wow. And it was an incredible moment um, to be in Cleveland because it was in that crucible of angst, right, where you have an entire civic leadership community recognizing that 20 years of investing in place hadn't changed the trajectory of the future of the city, that you can create these types of initiatives, uh, bioenterprise, but also all of those other complementary initiatives that I talked about. Uh, and so when you talk about, you know, every other city ought to have it, I think every city has to feel that pain to be able to do what are fundamentally unnatural acts, right? Whether it's the philanthropic sector deciding they're investing in companies or the public sector saying we're going to issue bonds to invest in technology or even the simple act of, in our case, the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals and Case Western coming together to collaborate on something. I mean, these are fierce competitors, as you know, Mm -hmm. uh, having to Cleveland, they don't collaborate on much of anything, uh, you know, it's, but they recognize that if they did not collaborate, uh, the future was going to be bleak, not just for the community, but for their, for their institutions as well, because they too ride on the fortunes of, of the region in general. I'm, I'm wondering which, which way I'd like to go here. I'd, I'd like to ask you, so you have, you were with you were with uh, McKinsey and Company? Yes. Um, and they, how did, so how did that coalesce? I'm, I'm, this is, this, I'm trying to figure out, so sure. we're looking at, the, you know, the foundation of, of, of right. uh, bioenterprise, and we can see that uh, uh, there was a vision to re-energize uh, or to, to establish a new industry, basically, based on the talent and inertia that was already happening in Cleveland. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, how did, how did that, you know, how was the realization? I want to know yeah. about how, how it was realized. Well, um, Mechanistic so a, I guess a couple of comments on that. So one, McKinsey's a, a unique firm, a consulting firm, uh, but in the Cleveland office in particular, it's had a unique history of engagement uh, on a pro bono basis on these major public issues that face our region. So, you know, you go back to 1980 and that uh, original group of business, civic, and uh, philanthropic leaders that came together, uh, McKinsey then facilitated the process as consultants and some of the McKinsey consultants uh, that led that process joined the organizations that emerged and helped drive a lot of that physical development. Uh, so on the one hand, you know, it's had a history of being engaged in the community. It's got a, uh, a set of relationships that I think positions it uh, to serve that facilitating consulting role well. Uh, what happened in Cleveland is you, you do have civic structures that were put in place back in 1980 that existed even in 2000, that bring together these various sectors. And it was, those, it was in those structures, what is now called the Greater Cleveland Partnership, at the time it was called Cleveland Tomorrow, uh, that the realization that we needed to do something drastically different than we had been doing uh, emerged. Uh, we at McKinsey were called in on a pro bono basis to assist in evaluating the situation and, and making recommendations. The institutions uh, that I mentioned, the clinic, university hospitals, and in Case Western came together on their own and said, you know, we we are the uh, some of the driving forces of, of Cleveland's healthcare distinctiveness. 
you know, we think we ought to be a part of driving, uh, you know, the strategy and vision for how we build on this uh, to really enable a much stronger regional uh, economic foundation. And so we, we were called in uh, to work on that stream as well. I think at one time we had th probably three or four different teams working on different aspects of Cleveland's redevelopment in that period, uh, launching something that's now called as Jumpstart, launching something that's now called Nortec, uh, being involved in the creation of what's now called Team Neo. All of these were projects that emerged out of that general uh, conversation and, and uh, effort by the broad business community. Uh, through a year-long process of examining what was going on in other geographies and how other geographies had capitalized on their healthcare assets to translate it into a broader uh, economy for their regions, we came up with our not only our vision and our metric, but we came up with a concrete set of strategies that needed to be implemented here in Cleveland and adopted them at, at the both the civic level but also at what is now uh, called the Bioenterprise or you know the Bioenterprise Board of Directors and decided that we were going to implement an organization as well as a series of initiatives related to that organization to to really realize that vision. So. How would you how would you define bioenterprise? Is it uh, an LLC? Is it a corporation? Is it a for profit? So, yeah, we are a nonprofit organization, and that's an important statement. But we are operated as if we are a private initiative, uh, in the sense that uh, while we are mission driven, our mission is you know that mission that I described, which is to make Cleveland a, a center of healthcare innovation, and our strategy to our primary strategy by which we do that is by supporting emerging entrepreneurs or recruiting entrepreneurs like yourself to Cleveland and supporting them uh, to develop a more vibrant uh, and uh, successful biomedical industry here. But the way we go about executing that strategy is really through uh, the lens of a private uh, organization. And, and what I mean by that is we spend a lot of time uh, not just assisting anybody that walks through the door, but uh, evaluating uh, all of the opportunities that come our way to find what we think will be the 15 to 20 best next things to work on each year uh, out of all of our pipeline. In any given year, we're looking at about 180 new opportunities emerging from entrepreneurs in the region or entrepreneurs that want to move to the region as well as inventors within our, our research institutions. Our institutions are, are also reviewing pre-screening, if you will, an additional 400 to 500 invention disclosures before we even get to the 180. So we've got a lot of deal flow that we're looking at, but we're sifting through that to find the 15 to 20 opportunities that we think have the most promise and then dedicating our resources as well as the resources within our network to supporting those 15 to 20 opportunities. We hold ourselves accountable by the simple measure of capital uh, attracted to those opportunities, capital being investment, grants, uh, loans, whatever form funding comes into these entities, you know, we feel that uh, in our space, uh, the ultimate test of selecting good entrepreneurs and giving them great support is whether or not funding is actually uh, attracted to those opportunities because funders, whether they, those are investors or grant makers, will take a look at you know, the quality of the technology, the opportunity within the marketplace, the, the quality of the team and, and experience of the team. Uh, as well as the, uh, the economic opportunity that's uh, present before making a decision to, 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 gener or to award funding in that direction. So that's how we hold ourselves accountable. Uh, and we have a very high uh, performance standard 
that sort of cascades throughout the team and the organization, but also, you know, the, the initiative as a whole. Um, there was a question in the chat room. Um, he, he was asking how the Cleveland Clinic, being at the forefront of biotech research, has influenced. Is it the major player in Cleveland, or, I mean, have you seen more business uh, business come from the various institutions, or more from outside coming to Cleveland for the yeah. opportunity? Yeah. So if you look at um, the, the Cleveland Clinic, Case Western Reserve University Hospitals are world leaders. Uh, in many different dimensions and I think become both a source of innovation but also a magnet for innovators and entrepreneurs whether they're from the region or outside of the region. So you can't overstate how important those institutions are to uh, helping realize this vision. Having said that, the entrepreneurs that are able to attract money uh, and generate new enterprises, two-thirds of those entrepreneurs come from uh, the region at large or, or to the region from other regions. Uh, they tend to be individuals that are already participating in industry. They're a little bit closer to what I would call applied innovation, where they see an opportunity because of a customer need, and they're able to develop a solution that is uh, closer to market. Uh, the innovation that's coming from within our institutions, uh, on the one hand, uh, is fundamental breakthrough innovation. But the challenge that that presents from a commercialization perspective is that's a lot further away from the market and therefore sometimes not, not, not as of great interest to investors uh, for, for building companies around. Uh, that's a broad generalization, but about two-thirds, again, of our entrepreneurs come from the region. Uh, One-third of those entrepreneurs and inventions originate from the institutions, but all of them collaborate very closely with the institutions where no matter what their origins might have been to develop their products for the marketplace. Well, you know, I have to admit as a, uh, so that was a question by uh, Zen, Zen Zhu. Um, I have to admit having those institutions around, you know, uh, to the east, uh, Case Westerns across the street, to the west, Cleveland Clinic's two blocks <laughs> in terms it's, of... Yeah, it's next door in terms of its parking lot. So. <laughs> it's, it's, we park there. It's amazing. And the emergency room's right there. So if you have uh, right. gallbladder issues, it's just up right. the street. It's fantastic. Right. So, uh, <laughs> God, I would go to the emergency room and come back and do my cells and go back right. to the emergency room. It's just right. crazy. So, um, but I... Well, and, and, proxim and proximity matters in innovation, right? So it, it's in this world of... Uh, technology where you and I are able to, to conduct this interview even though we're you know about 10 miles apart right now uh, and you can do this you know no matter where I am on the globe it's there's still this human factor where people think about who they are connected to and maybe it's a generational issue but they think about who they're connected to and who they're proximate to to collaborate with first and foremost before they start thinking uh, you know, in broader broader geography. So the fact that they're all sitting outside your windows, all three institutions, and they're all walking distance, um, that enables this great environment of innovation that that Cleveland has witnessed over the last ten years. Well, I, I think really in the uh, small scale, I mean, the I I certainly think that innovation comes from the smaller groups because the larger the group, they lower the slower the rate of innovation. Right. You know, you have to get it approved by everybody, and then if it's too risky, well, because there's every there's risk at every level of management where they they assume the risk for it, and they don't want to. Um, if you're uh, one person, you have nothing to lose. You're going to take the biggest uh, risks. But I was at that, I was at a roundtable today, just as as a humorous aside, and the roundtable included both small and large uh, medical companies. And so one of the small medical entrepreneurs uh, said, 
you know, in, in making a point. She goes, because all innovation comes from small companies. And then you heard the large companies groan a little bit and grimace. <laughs> and she goes, I'm sorry. I mean, most innovation. And then a large company said, well, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Oh, so, hey, that's cool. Uh, great minds think like me. Um, <laughs> I'm just so one of the things though being small is uh you don't necessarily you can't buy an x-ray machine and having the facilities close i mean we can send our dna in a tube by fedex to yale and get it sequenced by the keck facility we'll get sure. we'll get yale to make our dna for us but uh i'll walk it over to uh, cleveland clinic to have them sequence it i don't know why maybe because right. i know that i can see the tube and it's important to me that i right. put it in a place where i know somebody's going to pick it up rather than trust uh fedex to not put it into a uh an airplane uh, and get let it freeze at the bottom of the airplane. Um, but yeah, and I think your keyword there is trust, and I think that's what that's what um, that's what's important about being able to touch, feel, see the people that you're working with. And again, this might be a generational thing with all of the new social uh, media technologies that connect people in, in different ways. The definition of trusted relationship will probably change. I would imagine by the time my children. Are, are hopefully entrepreneurs, uh, but for now, proximity really does matter. And you know, it certainly lowers the cost. So you you you're, you're positioning uh, the bio enterprise building uh, where it is. I mean, you could have probably gotten some cheaper land uh, for the east, sure. or it, it's it's ideal. It's absolutely uh, incredible. So those looking to create bio accelerators or chambers of commerce get into the heart of it. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's why I mean. Uh, not that your rent is expensive because we're your landlord. You know, I think the rent is fairly <laughs> priced. But, you know, companies are willing to pay a premium. And, and when we talk to real estate developers about the fact that companies are paying what they're paying in our building or any of the other seven incubators that are located around this, this little Cleveland Health Tech corridor, they're shocked because they're, they have that same reaction. I've got cheaper space in, you know, suburban Industrial Park, I can find you Class B space downtown that's going to be substantial cheaper. I can even give you Class A with the view of the lake. But they don't understand that the value that these companies place on that proximity. Uh, and that's, yeah. you know, it is always location, location, location. And this is not a retail business issue. This is a business-to-business -business issue in, in terms of innovative companies. Well, the morgue is across the street, too. We didn't mention that. That's awfully convenient. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, there you go. You've got your live tissue lab right there. Uh, dead tissue lab. So uh, yeah. you've got your biopsy samples. Um, you know, I have to admit that the, the space that is here uh, it was my whole lab and office space. Um, it was the price of a bench in New Haven. And uh, when you're small and you're trying to innovate, uh, you don't want to put the money into the rent. You want to put the money into equipment and people. To, to get that innovation to happen. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the, uh, you know, off the, uh, you know, in terms of non-confidentially, some of the projects. Uh, so first of all, tell us about uh, the benchmarks that you've set sure. for BioEnterprise and have you met those benchmarks? The, the vision that you had 10 years ago, have you met that yeah. vision? Yeah, and it's really the benchmark for the region, not for just the organization. So we, we set the aspirational goal that we wanted to have as much capital inflow as a research triangle or a Minneapolis or other national hotspots. At the time when we started this and we benchmarked where we were as a region, Cleveland was attracting on average about $30 million a year through the entire tech boom into health care startups. 
Uh, 30 million uh, sounds like a lot, but is not even noticeable on the national venture funding radar. Uh, at the time, Research Triangle, Minneapolis were attracting about $150 million a year, just to give you a sense of benchmark. And then, of course, if you go to the, to the Bay Area or Boston, that's you know another order of magnitude larger than, than even those geographies. So we set the goal uh, at, uh, aspirationally that we wanted to be the same as Research Triangle and Minneapolis, and we wanted to get there in five years. So this was 2002 when we launched. We wanted to be there by 2007. We achieved that goal, actually, uh, somewhat by a fluke in 2005, where we had a great financing year with a number of companies that attracted funding. But since 2005 through 2010, for six straight years now, we've averaged $146 million per year coming in to fund biomedical ventures. And that includes the, you know, the huge downturn that occurred when we went through this uh, last very deep recession. Um, more importantly is we went from a handful of companies in any given year attracting private investment, which is really sort of the first step towards having a chance of not only successfully commercializing your innovation, but having a successful enterprise long term. We now get, uh, we, we had a handful of companies that in any given year would attract investment. We now have, because of this ecosystem that's been built and support that's available, we have about two dozen firms a year and that's again been consistent really probably for the last six years that attract private investment to support their uh, enterprises here, healthcare enterprises in, in the Cleveland market. So we've become uh, a region that's at parity with the research triangle. Minneapolis has taken a slight step forward beyond us still. They've gone from about 150 to now averaging roughly around $200 million a year. Uh, but we have become, I think, widely recognized is one of these centers of health innovation that is on the must-stop trail for investors and strategic partners uh, in the medtech industry. So, you know, we feel good about where we've come, but we also feel like we're nowhere near our, our ambition. Uh, so as a region and as a board, you know, every time we achieve something, we set the bar higher for ourselves. And our goal looking forward is to say, how do we now not only maintain that, and how do we take that next leap forward like Minneapolis has done and like uh, the San Diego area has done? So we should keep climbing up the curve, if you will, of uh, centers of health innovation in, in the United States. So I'm doing a back of the envelope calculation here, which is really crude. And yep. you had a, pe uh, a good year in sure. 2005, uh, 2002, roughly uh, uh, almost uh, 10 years. We're looking at uh, over a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we've, at had, we've had over a billion dollars of investment that have come in to fund these companies. Wow, that's a lot of jobs you've created or helped create, you know, catalyzed. I, 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 I kind of think of you as an enzyme. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, a catalyst. I think a catalyst is, yeah, you know, an enzyme can be a catalyst, of course. But, yeah, I, we're a catalyst. I mean, the entrepreneurs create the jobs. Our job is to assist the entrepreneurs, get them connected to the resources that they're going to need. Uh, but it's the entrepreneurs, the innovators that really create the jobs and our goal is to give them the resources to, to support them and give them a shot at being very successful, not only for that job creation uh, and kind of economic benefit for the region, but for bringing these products to the market. I mean, the, the, the stuff that these companies are working on are fundamentally uh, breakthrough products that can have incredible impact on patient lives. 
I'd, I'd like to ask you about some of the uh, more interesting technology stories that yeah. have, have come out of BioEnterprise, but I'm going to save that for the end. Okay. Uh, I want to uh, ask you mechanistically the, the role of BioEnterprise. Is it setting up infrastructure, lowering the bar barrier of entry by uh, you know, facilitating yeah. you know, legal services, for example, or advice? Yeah. Or is it um, yeah. by helping drive uh, public policy to yeah. um, enable innovation to happen. What, what's the most successful strategy that BioEnterprises has, has re relied on to create that? Uh, it was a five-fold. Yeah. In, in three years, you had a five-fold increase in investment. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's a little bit of all of the above. I mean, we, we view our role, uh, one, as a connector, you know, an intelligent connector. Uh, anybody can have a Rolodex of resources, whether those are funders, professional service firms, uh, business partners, uh, we are, you know, we, we view our, our role in terms of being, to be successful in what we do, is to have a lot of intelligence in the connections that we're, we're making. What I mean by that is we have to filter, you know, what is in it for everybody that we're trying to bring to the table. Uh, we spend a lot of time, again, in selecting companies that we're going to work with. We spend a lot of time listening to investors and other funders in this country to understand what they're looking for. And we understand it in a very... Uh, granular, at a very granular level. The better we understand it, the better we then can become a filter for them to access all of the steel flow. So they no longer have to look at 180 new opportunities each year out of Cleveland. They can look at maybe five things that match what they said they like. The stage of development, the, the disease area that the, of interest, the type of technology, the type of management team, the type of financial situation and valuation. All of those things go into uh, a factor, and if we can make their lives more efficient, we become sort of a trusted uh, call when we make the call to say, you know, would you would you take a meeting with X Y Z because we think it fits what you've described that you're looking for. In that same way, we have to use that same judgment when we're introducing business resources, whether those are contract uh, research organizations or engineering firms, manufacturing firms, or even clinical partners. You know, lots of companies want to have. Uh, the ability to work with the types of institutions we've talked about, uh, we don't want to just put every company in front of them because that would be a waste of a lot of people's time and we wouldn't get our phone calls or emails returned. So we're very selective about how we choose firms and then who we introduce them to uh, because we know what the other side is is looking for. So I think that's probably the most important role we play and the most important, um, I guess, insight in terms of our strategy and how we try to go about uh, supporting entrepreneurs. Uh, the second piece of that is counseling. You, you talked about business advising. Uh, part and parcel of sort of connecting them to resources is also counseling on what's required from where they are to where they want to get to in terms of their next milestone. So our team uh, is a very experienced team. Uh, they come out of industry. Uh, they work with, you know, they've worked on a number of projects themselves prior to coming to BioEnterprise, but then they've worked with the whole breadth of clients. And they have great uh, instincts and insight and business judgment that can be brought to bear to companies on terms of choosing pathways for product development or partners for, for commercialization or approaches to financing. And we bring that to bear through counseling, uh, but really affect it you know, through the connections piece. That's most of what BioEnterprise does. That's sort of how we're best understood. That's what our website will look like uh, to, to most people because we're marketing ourselves to entrepreneurs as well as these other resource or funding providers. 
But the third piece is this, this notion of the catalyst, because we recognize that for us to be successful, the environment has got to be in a great environment in which to grow biomedical firms. It's not enough to have a single venture firm in town, for example, or a single engineering firm in town. You really need to have this deep network uh, that you would find in places like Boston or the Bay Area or Research Triangle. And so it's that third aspect of being the catalyst where our role can take many different forms. Uh, certainly, we spend a lot of time on public advocacy, uh, primarily with the state of Ohio, stressing the importance of this industry, advocating for policy that is going to be more supportive to growing, in particular, the small firms in our industry, and that, whether that's policy around capital availability, uh, policy around workforce development, uh, whatever it might be. We also spend a lot of time catalyzing uh, what we call uh, the Switzerland projects in Cleveland, the projects that are beyond the scope of any one institution. So it's institutions coming together to form new research institutes or drive you know, adjacent real estate development in the Cleveland Health Tech Corridor. Or most recently, uh, in terms of a civic project, uh, the beginning and uh, development of now the Cleveland Medical Martin Convention Center. Uh, so we view our, all of those roles are important roles, and we play all of those uh, roles. I guess the fourth role that we play uh, that we haven't talked about uh, but we're probably well known for, at least within the region, perhaps around the country, is really communicating about all of this because it doesn't, uh, it accelerates the, the excitement and energy around the space the more that people are aware of what's going on. And people here meaning not only those that are in the industry, so investors and uh, strategic partners and, and uh, specialized resources like regulatory and engineering and design firms, but also the average citizens and supply chain companies all throughout Cleveland. So we spend a lot of time communicating about the industry, highlighting the successful entrepreneurs and, and firms that are, are here, uh, and creating this sense that we truly are one of the hubs of healthcare innovation uh, in the country. Those are that's a, a complex set of tasks uh, that cover a broad range of, of uh, you know, your to-do list becomes very, very broad. Um, you know, one of the great uh, things that I've benefited from uh, uh, coming here is having had the opportunity to talk to both uh, the former governor and the current governor, not to mention right. the state senators and state representatives, sure. uh, and and press upon them uh, the importance of making sure that the industry of uh, uh, you know biotechnological innovation, or giving them an idea of what we do, and 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 so that they could you know make sure that. Um, that the environment is maintained, that they work with you, you know, so that yeah. they can yeah. help you, and and then make sure that you know, it's it's, it's some sometimes it's a, a minor uh, investment or it's just a line on a bill, and it makes all the difference in the world at uh, making sure that uh, people come to your region if you're trying to attract talent. Absolutely, um, and and we've been very fortunate that you know Ohio is a famous swing state in politics, so we go Republican, Democrat, Republican all the time, and the support though for this industry. Uh, in particular at the state level, but also at the U.S. You know, federal representative level, our senators, has been unwavering in spite of changes in individuals and political leadership and political parties that, that have leadership over these various positions. Do you think it's because for American global competitiveness, the biotech sector is one that uh, the U.S. has a, a lead on? I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I you know, there's no politician, in spite of the current environment, even in sort of the, the quote, uh, the boom days of sort of the, the middle part of this past decade, everybody, every politician is interested in jobs. Every politician is interested in innovation. Every politician is interested in, 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 in national competitiveness. And this industry 
is one of the very few industries left in this country that has a positive trade surplus. What that means is we actually export more than we import in this particular sector. Uh, and that's driven only because of innovation. So there, there's a high degree of interest because there is such a fundamental need for, for ongoing job creation and a need for economic growth at, the, at the, both the state as well as federal level uh, in this particular industry. But I think it also has to do, I mean, that, that would be true of any industry that's out there. I think the second aspect of it, because we're all patients or we're all parents of patients or uh, children of patients, neighbors of patients, what our companies work on has an emotional connection to society and to politicians in a way that's fundamentally different than other sectors. Right? It's not about just making more cars. Uh, it is about changing the quality of life or extending life for people that they know. Uh, and that really resonates. I mean, it, it, when you talk about what these entrepreneurs, yourself included, are working on and why it's important and what the current state of the practice is and what that means for the patient and what you're trying to bring to the market and what that could mean for the patient, that, that creates that emotional connection to our industry that I think uh, engenders even greater both support from politicians but the public at large. Well, you know, I have to say that um, being in the biotech sector, we yesterday we had the fortune of uh, meeting with the president of uh, uh, the Cleveland Indians at a, a training yeah. uh, camp. It was so much fun. Sure. So, <laughs> and some of the folks said, "Well, you know, that was somewhat inspiring. It was, it was okay speech, but you know, if he has to come out there and say, I love baseball. This is yeah. the greatest game in the world.'" Even you know, I might be high up here in the, that office over there at the corner of the stadium, but I watch every game because I love right. it, and I'm here right. because of uh, a pure love of the game. And and with uh, the biotech sector, you kind of have to embrace it that way that you, you, yeah. know, you love yeah. uh, you love doing it because you can translate it to the clinic and save potentially millions of lives. I guess yeah. NMD can do it on a day to day basis, patient by patient, sure. um, and that, that's that's a difficult thing to do if you're in the lab, but. Um, you know, you can change the world, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, 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 one of the guests on the show, um, Rick Clifton, uh, who was studying hypertension, trying to find out the genetics of hypertension, found out it was a kidney disease, and then they started to use diuretics to treat hypertension. And uh, his, his science led to the change of, of you know, pharmacological practice uh, for about 100 million people and potentially yeah. save 50 to 100 million people. So you're, yeah. Or extended their lifespan and life quality. So there's a, there's a tremendous... Uh, um, uh, rewarding aspect, or at least that's the that's the gold rush is trying to see how you can, you can you know change people's lives. And yeah, that's so that's the motivation. That that's what makes people work. You know, that, all those extra hours and sacrifice on so many other fronts is that potential impact that you can have on patients. You you can't just do that from the lab, and I uh, I, I certainly yeah. think that what you've created here in Cleveland is a, a great model. I, I really urge people to go to the BioEnterprise uh, website and, uh, and and take a look. I, I we are we're running low on time here, and there's uh, two questions I'd like to ask you. And the first one would be, okay. um, and excluding us, <laughs> yeah. what do you think is the most interesting story that's that has come out of uh, uh, the the space of BioEnterprise? You know, um, there, there's so much. I, I'll talk about um, two technology areas that I think are really uh, exciting and relatively novel 
uh, for not just the region, but really for the world. Now, when I was growing up, there was a great show on television. I, I thought it was a great show called Bionic Man. And, you know, there was Bionic Woman as well. And it was all about sort of, you know, restoring function and creating superhuman uh, uh, muscle capacity uh, for, for injured individuals that, you know, then become superheroes of sorts. And um, that was always great science fiction. It's a great story. But the whole area of neurostimulation is an area that went from science fiction, things that you could only dream about, to products that are now being used to change patients' lives. Uh, and there are a number of companies that have emerged in the Cleveland area based on research at Case Western and Cleveland Clinic and Metro Health and, and actually the VA here uh, and university hospitals that are in this great space of neurostimulation. And they're making products that uh, restore the ability for um, uh, individuals to breathe. A, company, a little company called Synapse Biomedical that makes a diaphragmatic pacing device uh, allows people with uh, severe conditions such as high-level spinal cord injury or ALS or other, uh, you know, ventilator dependency to breathe on their own again through their implants or uh, pain management devices that are uh, neurostimulation uh, dependent or bladder control. Uh, you also see a lot of companies in deep brain stimulation where they're able to intervene in the electrical pathways that are occurring in the brain uh, for things such as motion disorders and restore normal uh, human function for people that have been afflicted with lifelong conditions or debilitating conditions. And I, I think that whole area is fascinating because it's this intersection of uh, electronic technology with electrical pathways, which I find to be mind-boggling that, you know, our body is not just chemistry, it's electricity uh, and, um, and software, and that we can actually restore function for paraplegics and uh, restore function for, for individuals that have been afflicted with these types of debilitating conditions. So that's an area that I would say is, is really exciting and that Cleveland is one of the uh, probably five uh, hot areas in the, in the world uh, in terms of companies and research and innovation uh, in that space. The other area that's really uh, quite exciting because it's, it's relatively new in terms of patient care is, is the whole area of regenerative medicine. Uh, and here I'm, I'm thinking uh, more about um, not embryonic stem cell uh, therapies rather than embryonic stem cells. Embryonic stem cells get all the attention because of not only their great potential, but because of their great uh, political issues that are, are generated around embryonic stem cells. But non-embryonic stem cells from a commercial product perspective are much further along. They're much easier to control. They're much, easy, they're much less controversial in terms of how they're sourced and how they're used. And they're already being used in a broad array of clinical studies. Uh, and to some extent, if you consider you know, bone marrow transplants and blood transfusions to be examples of this already for you know, procedures that are available on the market here in the United States. And so that whole area is a fascinating area. And we've got a number of companies that have emerged uh, in our region, Arteriocyte, Athersis, Juventus, uh, cell targeting that are in this space of non-embryonic uh, uh, regenerative medicine that uh, I think is just uh, an exciting area for the future of, of medicine and patient care. Well, you know, you're, I've now gotten a long list of folks that I don't have to go very far to interview. <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. I, They're all around I, the corner for me somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, um, uh, I, I'm pausing here because I had a question in mind and I, it just slipped my mind. It was, uh, do you think, oh, here it is. It was worth waiting for, I, I, I hope. Um, do you think that biomedical engineering 
angle to biotechnology versus pharmacology versus, uh, um, you know, maybe sure. clinical practices, changes, you know, innovations through ch uh, changes in clinical practice. But uh, medical devices and, and that sort of thing uh, through biomedical engineering is a, a good fit for Cleveland in that Cleveland has a fundamental culture of manufacturing, like a history of innovation and manufacturing. Yeah, I think I think yes, but is what it was my short answer. Yes, because it builds on I think a lot of the skill sets of industries that are already present. Whether it's the materials technologies industries uh, are uh, industries that are you know hone their skills in precision manufacturing of metals, uh, electronics, you know subassemblies, et cetera, in the automotive. It builds on all of those sectors and the skills that are available in the local workforce and it certainly is an area of great strength over half of our companies in Cleveland we have about 700 biomedical companies now in Cleveland more than half of those are medical device companies in one way shape or form however 700. Wow. yeah 700 uh, there's 700 <laughs> companies out there right now which is great you know and we hope to you know more than double that again in the next five years the the convergence of technologies is is important uh, so whether you're coming at it from the biology perspective, the chemistry perspective, uh, certainly pharmacology, what we're seeing in terms of next generation uh, therapies is a lot more interest in the convergence of devices and what were traditionally called biologics or drugs. So you, know, you go back to regenerative medicine. Uh, you, you see a lot of interest in innovation that includes scaffolds coupled, you know, that are infused with uh, different types of um, uh, therapeutic agents to to really speed healing processes for different types of diseases and I think it's vital for for Cleveland and for any community that is interested in medical innovation to not pigeonhole themselves into one area or the other whether it's just biotech or just uh, pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. or just uh, medical devices or even just IT I mean you think about a lot of devices of the future are going to be IT enabled they're not just going to be the software that controls the neuro controls uh, that we, we talked about in terms of uh, nerve stimulation, but there's going to be monitoring technology. We're going to have onboard monitors inside of us, implantables, that is going to be transmitting information to monitor health, to monitor condition of devices, and to you know, perhaps trigger releases of uh, uh, pharmace pharmaceutical or biological agents to, to intervene in uh, conditions to prevent hospitalization. I mean, all of these technologies converge, and I think to be a vibrant region for biomedical innovation, you need to be able to nurture all of those different streams, and then you need to bring them together. You need to see the intersections between these different technical streams, because that's where the fundamentally uh, new breakthroughs come come from. Well, it must be really neat to be at the center of it all. You know, everybody, it's a real, it's a real really privilege to uh, to be to watch uh, all of these incredible ideas that come through, and then to try to figure out how do you support them. Well, you, you create this giant vortex of positiveness that just makes us all want to fall into the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the Beijou uh, circle, which is uh, really cool and uh, one that I appreciate uh, very, very much. Um, he, by the way, I haven't mentioned, uh, told you about the, one of the new uh, projects that we're working on, to, not at Aromics, but I've started another uh, company that we're making nanoparticles that carry drug, but that we, these ones, other as opposed to being antibodies that go and randomly attach to the proper, well, randomly flow and then attach to the proper tissues, we can drive them. We can drive these wow. nanoparticles into the brain and then wiggle them across the blood-brain barrier. 
But that's mm. another, we'll, we'll talk about it another time. Um, sure. <laughs> so here's my last question for you. Um, you are trying to convince someone who hasn't visited Cleveland to come yeah. to Cleveland to bring talent, uh, to bring the talent here. What yeah. are the, say, the four most important things? It could be three or five. It's okay. Sure. That, that make Cleveland unique and a place yeah. that they want to live. Well, I think there's, so I think there's, let's assume they're in the biomedical space, obviously. So I think the first thing you have to sell anybody on is that there's this vibrant innovation environment. People want to be a part of that. They want to think not only about the job they're moving for, but the next five jobs that are likely to occur, you know, in, in today's careers where all of us are expected to work at anywhere between five to 15 different uh, organizations before we are uh, of our uh, retirement age. So you, you have to convince them. Uh, and I think we have the evidence to convince them now that you've got these 700 companies, but you've also got this wonderful, interconnected, innovative environment that they can become a part of so they can realize their professional goals and professional potential. The second thing then you have to, I think, articulate, which makes Cleveland unique, is you do have an extraordinarily high quality of life. Uh, that's everything from you know, low commute time, low cost of living, but the amenities, you know, the amenities of a top-tier city, whether it's world-class museums and orchestras uh, and all that goes with that, or professional sports teams, or the great parks and the lakefront, and everything is here in terms of a high quality of life. And more importantly, everything is accessible. Uh, it's the accessibility that differentiates, I think, Cleveland, both in terms of the, the innovative environment as well as the quality of life, because you don't have to work until you're in your 50s to be able to afford all of that stuff or you don't have to live an hour and a half away because that's all you can afford to live at and then suffer in quality of life because of the commute times and the impact it has on your personal life and your, and your family. All of that is, is accessible in a way that uh, is not true for most of our country, at least most of the major other healthcare centers in our country. Uh, and, and it's a way that's very appealing and I think surprising to people that move here from from places such as Connecticut or, or even California. <laughs> it is those amazing. are the things I, I, yeah. those are the things that I think sell Cleveland. I, I since I've moved here in three years I have not sat in a traffic jam. Never. Right. Not once. Right. Zero traffic jams. Never. And I and I, th and I think the third thing that really sort of so those two things I think are, are vital. And the third thing that um, I don't think people appreciate because they don't know that they want this until they see it and they start experiencing is the sense of community engagement. Uh, I think Cleveland, you know, whether you're talking about your local PTO, which you and I know well, Mark, or mm -hmm. whether you're talking about the civic leaders that come together to, to create, you know, this biomedical environment and sort of dedicate themselves to it over 10 years, this is, a, this is a region that has an unusually high level of civic engagement. People feel like they're part of a community. They feel like they belong to something bigger than themselves. And that's a very powerful feeling. And the fact that people can jump into a community, and it gets back to the accessibility. You don't have to wait. I, you know, again, you were talking about my age when I got involved in, in bioenterprise. I was 29 at the time when we were coming up with these ideas and coming up with these bold, ambitious visions and grand plans. I was 29 years old. You, can, you can't do that in many other regions of this country. Uh, so you have this incredibly... Uh, incredible culture that underlays all of this of civic engagement where you come and you become part of the community immediately 
and you're able to realize your professional goals, you're able to realize your personal goals, and you're able to achieve you know, this togetherness, uh, this oneness with your neighbors and your peers that you didn't realize you were missing until you actually have it. It's kind of a culture shock. I have to admit, it is a, it, it is a culture shock. It's a culture shock. It, Although it I, is a culture shock. It had some great um, positive aspects to it. Uh, uh, Ohio, Ohio, and uh, and Cleveland is uh, it's almost culture shock. How how much people care? I mean, it, yeah. it's, everybody here cares. It's, and, and it's genuine. Yeah, and I have yeah. to be careful and and. I, I find myself watching myself to make sure that I, I, I try and be as cordial as them because um, right. I come off as you know, he's from the East Coast or whatever, from Montreal. Well, you're, you're Canadian. You've got an advantage. You're, yeah, so. well, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> hey, you, I have to admit, um, one of the things that kept us here uh, are the incredible beaches. And everybody from here, one thing that people that grew up here, I, I, I tend to realize, notice that is that they don't appreciate the lake so much yeah. in that at one point they lived here through a point, point where it was horrible and it smelled. But uh, it, it's the shallowest lake. It's cleared, clears every two years and the beaches have recovered and some of the nicest beaches in the country are on the north, north coast. And yeah. the sunsets are... Uh, sunsets are north, incredible on the lake. They are amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anybody who's considering a career in, in technology... Um, and a career in biotechnology. There's a lot going on here, and I'll, uh, I'll sort of encourage them to g give you a shout. That'd be um, great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, well, thank you for your work. Uh, I appreciate it uh, personally, and uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Oh, thanks, Mark, for having me. It was uh, it's, it's really, really cool. And um, do you have any, any last thoughts uh, that you'd like to uh, pass on to the, uh, to the world? Of biotechnology. No, I think I think it's I think what again I I think I'm energized by being a part of this sector, and I think it's it's just full of such amazing individuals that have these great noble motivations that it's a great sector to join if you're looking for a place to have a career. On that note, uh, our guest today was Beju Shaw, who is president and CEO of BioEnterprise in Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I'd also like to thank Bert McQuinn for handling the audio and video boards today and the recordings. Uh, we had some uh, really hardcore <laughs> technological uh, problems at the start, and he, 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 again, was very patient and made it through and helped us get this going. Um, I'd like to thank also uh, Leo, Leo Laporte, uh, Lisa Kinsel, Louis Eileen Rivera, Tony Wang, Mike Taylor, John Selena, Jess Stewart, Jason Howell, and all uh, the, uh, the great folks at uh, the Twit uh, Cottage, soon to be Twit Studios. Lastly, I'd like to thank Phil Pelsey and Will Hall for the opening and closing themes. Uh, if you have any comments or suggestions, I can be reached at Mark, M-A-R-C, at twit.tv or on Twitter at Mark Pelletier, M-A-R-C-P-L-L-E-T-I-E-R. For Futures in Biotech, I'm Mark Pelsey.